0: Hey, everyone. Keith here. I wanted to share some insight into this episode before you give it a listen. This episode is an unreleased conversation I had last year with Chief Sustainability Officer Sam Israelit as part of last year's ESG series. On that series, we featured leaders who are finding bold new ways to create a more sustainable world for everyone. After hearing Sam, I encourage you to go back and listen to the other ESG episodes that feature Francois Faelli giving insight into our ESG capabilities, Sasha Duschnowski sharing some of the ESG work we've done with the Nature Conservancy and some awesome work we did with the Marshall Islands, and my friend and mentor Julie Kaufman who talks about our impactful DEI work inside and outside of the firm. We hope you find all of these episodes interesting and we're looking forward to recording a lot more in the future. Take care and have a great day. Joining me today is Sam Israelit, Bain's Chief Sustainability Officer. Sam joins us as part of our ESG series, where we'll be spotlighting some of the leaders inside Bain, sharing our expertise, and touching on the importance of finding bold new ways to make a positive impact on our clients, in our communities, and inside Bain. In this episode, we'll discuss his journey to Bain, his journey to becoming Bain's first Chief Sustainability Officer, and some of the work that Bain is doing internally in the ESG arena. Sam, good to have you here.
1: Great to be here. Nice to talk to you, Keith.
0: Sam, we always start by just helping people get a sense of who we're talking to and their backgrounds. Like me, you were an engineer, but can we talk a little bit about your path to being an engineer? It seems like a lot of engineers on the business side of things working at Bain, but what was your story when you were growing up and decided to go to school for engineering?
1: When I was a kid, I just like to take things apart and figure out how they worked. And, you know, it was one of those just hobbies. It drove my mother nuts because she'd find pieces of everything all over the place. But because I wasn't very good at putting them back together again, but I always enjoyed understanding how things worked. And then at the same time, this was the, you know, when I was in high school is really when the the computer was starting to be right. kind of popular, the de- the birth of the desktop computer. And, you know, I just thought it would be a really interesting thing to go study around you know, how do computers work and electronics and everything. And so that's what led me into engineering.
0: It was one of those times when the TRS-80 and the Commodore VIC-20 and 64 were sort of putting it affordably in people's homes.
1: That's right. right. really, the, The original IBM PCAT, which had all of a 20 megabyte hard drive.
0: Now you go and decide to do engineering, but you also stayed for your master's like me. Was that an easy decision or something you knew on the way in?
1: I didn't know it when I went in, but it was something that when I was there, as when I was a senior, Harvey Mudd had a program that you could stay for a fifth year and do your master's in engineering. And, you know, for me, this was, I was having a really good time. And, and again, it goes back to the electronics, was having a lot of opportunities to play with kind of what at the time was new, the microprocessor and learning how to use microprocessors to develop systems, basically building computers. And, you know, actually being able to get my hands dirty on that. And I just wanted a chance to keep doing that. I thought it was a really exciting time and I was loving what I was doing. And so I applied and was accepted into the program and was able to do the fifth year to to get the master's really in kind of digital control systems.
0: Right. And afterwards, you put that into use at Hughes Aircraft as an engineer. What was that like for you? Is that what you expected? And did you think that was going to be your career for the foreseeable future when you joined?
1: I did. I was going to be an engineer for life. I was one of those people that just loved what I was doing. Hughes at that time was a, an amazing place. The, you know, They were all focused on just what's the, the coolest and best technology they could develop. They didn't pay a lot of attention to profit at the time. It was just after they'd been purchased by GM. So the mindset was still, we don't really have to pay attention to profit. We just have to build really cool stuff. And uh, <laughs> of course, that led to lots of problems in the industry. <laughs> It was a great time to be there and just we worked on some fascinating technologies.
0: And you ended up, though, deciding to go back to business school. Was that based on something that happened at work or something you knew that you wanted to do because you had some other interests outside of work or what?
1: Yeah, for me, it it was a bit of a surprise. I hit the glass ceiling in the defense industry. And what that meant is that I was too young to be doing some of the things that they were actually asking me to do. And it was starting to limit what I could do. I couldn't get kind of ahead in the company without kind of understanding the business side. I was great on the technology side, but you know, when I'd go into discussions, I didn't really know that language of business. And so I chose to go back to business school so that I could learn that new language and bring it kind of into my kind of capability set. So I could have these discussions with the higher up people. And so that for me, was you know just a, a really great discontinuity in my career that let me step back and and just try something new.
0: And when you when you went to school, I think you went to Sloan. So we actually got to campus at MIT the same year, back in 1991. Yeah. Did you have a dream job in mind when you went there of what you wanted to do on the back end?
1: Yes, I wanted to go to Apple. That was going to be my exit. I really wanted to go work on the Apple ID purchased the Apple IIe when it first came out and had always been a big (laughs) Apple thing. And I actually did end up getting a summer job there, but that was the year they had some financial issues and they actually put all of their hiring on hold. And so I ended up not getting to go to Apple and ended up at Intel instead.
0: It is pretty amazing, I'm sure, for some of the people listening today to think that within our lifetimes, there was a struggling company in the valley named Apple.
1: Yes, Exactly. So, They've come a long way since then.
0: They certainly have, as I sit here recording part of this episode on an Apple device. Sam, you ended up graduating and going into consulting after Sloan, but what type of consulting did you do? Was it strategy consulting?
1: No, I actually worked with a spinoff of one of my professors, and, and I did a couple of different things there. That a, a lot of the, the interests I had at that time were around computer simulation. And there were some professors who worked in an area called System Dynamics mm-hmm. that is a, you know, a discipline developed at MIT. And it's really applying engineering principles to management and using computers to model out behaviors and, and to test different strategies. And so I really was, I worked for a boutique consulting firm for a couple of years, helping companies with things like scenario planning. Right. And um, it was it was just a really good it was my first kind of entry into more the management side of work and you know how can you apply things like inventory policies you know, are are really the engineering concepts that you know you can model in a business sense as well.
0: Right, it seems like a nice middle ground between where you were and where you're trying to be and you ended up making the transition to a company some people might recognize differently but Arthur Anderson uh, yes. at the time. And did that get you further towards the business side and the strategy side?
1: Yes one of the partners at Arthur Anderson in New York had seen a presentation I gave on using computer simulation to model business policies and said in his mind he was a very visionary kind of guy and he said this is kind of the new the new accounting of the world and you know he had the vision of creating using computer simulations as a way to for companies to have an alternative form of kind of balance sheet and income statement so he recruited me to come in and figure out how to do that. I was there for for several years where it really morphed into becoming how can we use computer simulations to support management decision making? So anything right. related to you know state different state models we were building, or discrete event models, linear programming, things like that.
0: Yeah, and as somebody who did some linear programming at an AC, it's funny to think about how far away in the future it seemed some of the things you're talking about, you know, to use management systems to support decision-making today is something you just look at an app on your phone and you know what to do.
1: Yeah. Well, we just finished a project where, you know, we were in a team meeting and I was talking with one of the, te- with the team about it. I said, you know, why don't we just run a Monte Carlo simulation for that? And it kind of blew their minds. They're like, well, we didn't think about that. And it took them maybe, I think they probably took two days to actually build the model and come up with an answer that was you know, something like in 95% of cases, there's a $5 gap between these two options. And you know, if I think back to when I was a young engineer using Monte Carlo's, I mean, we would spend weeks and weeks just building the simulation right. and then it would take one run would be you know, nine, 10, 11 hours.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I used to run my linear program overnight, just basically start yeah. it and then come in the next day and hope that it didn't crash or-, or- Yes. That's right. Prompt me oh, with that. I left off
1: that one variable. And I gotta right, go right, right, right.
0: Exactly, exactly. So Sam, you're doing that work at Anderson and you end up at Bain. How did that come about? Because it sounds like your career was, was starting to take shape. You were finding areas of expertise and pushing where you wanted, but you still made a, another transition into Bain. And was that sort of something that was planned or did it just sort of happen?
1: It was definitely just a random event. I got a random phone call from a headhunter. And they said that they were representing one of the global consulting firms and wanted to know if I would talk to them. And I at first said, no, I wasn't interested. I was pretty happy doing what I was doing, but you know, this particular recruiter was pretty aggressive. And he kind of said, look, I will do anything to get you to come talk to us. They're trying to found an IT practice and you seem like a perfect candidate. And so I gave him a challenge and told him that if he was in O'Hare airport, as I flew through that night, (laughs) I would be willing to meet with him for 30 minutes in the red carpet club. And uh, sure enough, he showed up and he told me it was Bain. And I knew about Bain from business school, but had never really thought about going there. Hadn't really thought about moving into more strategic consulting. And, but, you know, I was impressed enough with what he said that it was worth kind of taking the next step. And so uh, I actually did go, you know, end up talking to Bain.
0: And I think some of the people that you talked with are still here.
1: Yes, absolutely. Well, they they kind of set me up because the three people that did my first round of interviews were Steve Perez, Bob Beachek, and Chris Zook. And you know you probably couldn't pick a better crew of people to kind of represent Bain. And so I came out of that interview. I told my wife it was going to be just an interview and I probably wouldn't do anything with it. And I came home and said, that's an amazing group. I want to work at this company because I just had such a good time talking with them and what was possible. It was just a very different approach to Consulting on what someone could do than we had in the big five.
0: Yeah. And, and for those who, who don't recognize the name, Steve was a longtime leader, is a longtime leader in our enterprise tech practice. Bob Beecheck was our worldwide managing partner before our current worldwide managing partner, Manny Maceda. And Chris Zook has authored, I don't know, Sam, three, four different books at this point.
1: Yeah, at least.
0: Right. And so that is quite the best of Bain first round. Who was your second round interview if that was your first round?
1: <laughs> yeah, that's it. Was a, a whole crew from the Boston office, many of whom are also still here, and uh, including like Phyllis Yale, who was eventually or was the office head at the time, was another person who was very good. I mean, she's the one when they did make me the offer, um, you know. And, and one of the things they did is they actually asked me to step back from being a partner at Anderson to being a manager at Bain. And, um, you know, at first I was kind of questioning that, but Phyllis explained it really well. She said, look, you you have a lot of the partner skill set we need, but what right. you don't have is an understanding of how we do consulting. And so you really need to step back. If you're going to be successful here, you need to understand that, how we approach the work so that you can be more effective delivering the work as a partner. And it was absolutely the right call. Kind of swallowed my pride and said, yeah, I can be a manager and step back to doing that.
0: Sam, I, I want to pause there for a second because I do think that there's a lot of people who think the path is always linear and always up and to the right. Who in your life or who did you seek advice from uh, to be humble enough to sort of take that step back in your career so that you could go forward faster when you got here?
1: Yeah, there were, I mean, uh, one of the the most important people was obviously my wife and talking to her about it she basically told me you know i need what she'd observed is i always need a challenge
0: right. and
1: if this was going to be a challenge where i learned something new i'd have a good time and it really wasn't about the money or anything and obviously the package was attractive but it wasn't about that it was was i going to be challenged and did i really like the people i'd be working with and then once i joined the firm there were a handful of people that just became mentors to me there in boston i think that's one of the lessons that to this day, I still tell my advisees is you need to find those two or three people who are going to be your backbone. Who are the people that are going to support you no matter what? Right. Just because you're you, not because it's their role or anything. And so I think that's a really important part of the career journey is early on identifying who's that internal network that's your sponsor group.
0: Yeah, and how did you find your path inside Bain? Because you've done a, a bunch of different things. You know, the enterprise tech practice was arguably the calling card that, that you came here to join, but you've also done performance improvement work, supply chain work. You know, how did you find your path and navigate your Bain career?
1: For me, I always look for kind of it's a little bit like I just mentioned, I look for opportunities to learn something new. And, you know, I, I get bored doing the same thing over and over again. And so I joined to help co-found the IT practice with Steve. And did that for a couple of years. My true love has always been operations. I love getting right. my hands dirty. It ties back to my engineering background and my prior work at Hughes where I would kind of built distribution networks and things. Yep. And so you pretty quickly end up kind of, if you mix operations and IT, you end up in supply chain. And so, <laughs> you know, I started doing some supply chain cases and I really loved that type of work and i can remember back you know right after i made partner i was talking with the office at the time dave johnson and just told him i said look anytime that somebody in the firm has a problem in supply chain with anything from managing suppliers through manufacturing distribution logistics inventory or planning especially in consumer products and retail i want to be the guy they call he kind of said that's a great aspiration it's big enough to kind of keep you fed go for it so that became kind of the the longer term vision of what I wanted to do with my career and then a lot of it came down to just relationships right and, and you know it's uh at the time it was a little bit different from the normal model because I don't know if you remember back back then it was industry right? you picked yeah. an industry and that's where you focused and I was trying to do it the other way which was cut across and be capability i didn't I didn't really care about the industry I wanted to kind of do supply chain right and that was different. But it, it was kind of the, you know, the touchstone for me throughout my career was finding opportunities that built up that expertise across the extended supply chain.
0: Yeah, and it's not surprising at all that DJ or Dave Johnson, you know, encouraged you to do that. Uh, I think he tend to be very supportive and forward-thinking on a lot of things. That would Absolutely. be one of
1: them. Absolutely, and that's a time we didn't have a lot. We, you know, we'd done a lot of operations work. we have done a lot of manufacturing work you know, isolated cases across the firm, but we hadn't really built up a supply chain practice. And there were a handful of people that were very active, people like Miles Cook in Atlanta, right. you know, that's where he had kind of staked an early ground. And it took me under his wing and really gave me the opportunity to build that expertise with him as well.
0: So talk about the move to San Francisco. You made partner in 2004, so sort of delivered on sort of the career aspiration when you joined Bain, but you moved to San Francisco. And what did you focus on when you got out to San Francisco?
1: Yeah, the move to San Francisco, so I'd had secret ambitions to get to the West Coast. I was raised in the West Coast, and so I'd I'd always wanted to get back here, but I got married out of business school and ended up staying on the East Coast. DJ reached out to me and asked if I'd be willing to move to San Francisco for a year to support one of our new clients out here. He basically said, uh, we have a big transformation going on. We need somebody who knows something about supply chain to go out and lead the team for that part of the world. And would you go? And so uh, I convinced my wife to at least give it a shot. The firm moved us out here in early 2007. I timed her. It was 19 hours and seven minutes after we landed. She said, wow, California is really nice. And at that <laughs> point, I kind of knew we were, we'd made it.
0: That's amazing. Now, while you were out there, you did set up some routes. I'm looking at you on your, your virtual Zoom background here. And I think you put more routes down than just where you decided to buy a house and live, right?
1: Yes, exactly. We also bought a ranch in Central Coast region of California. Uh, where we have planted a bunch of olive trees and we actually raise olives and make a super premium brand of extra virgin olive oil.
0: And how does that fit in with your bane work or is it the, the, the fact that it's separate from your bane work that, that makes it such a great use of your time?
1: Well that and that's actually it's for me it's therapy. Right. It's the you know it's when things get really stressful at work and I need to kind of take a mental break, you know, I can go drive the tractor or go out and prune trees or bottle oil do things that just, you know, help me kind of take my mind off the, what might be kind of, I might be wrestling with at work. And that just gives me a break to think differently. And so for me, it's relaxation and a chance to de-stress.
0: I think it's important to mention that we can get too caught up on these episodes of talking about, you know, you did this and you did this and you did this and not realizing you got to replenish the tank every once in a while.
1: That's right. You got to have something that keeps you stimulated outside of work. And I think that it's unique. You know, when I look at across our kind of people group and just, you know, that all the ACs and the consultants, I'm continually amazed at what all they do outside of work Right. and, you know, the different nonprofits they're part of, or the different activities, their or organizations they're supporting. It's very few of them have to do with, I'm a consultant in this particular, you know, it's a business related thing. Yeah. It's I'm on the board of, you know, the homeless shelter or the, you know, SPCA or the food bank or something else They're you know, they've always got something else going. And I think that just, it makes our people really well-rounded.
0: Yeah, I, I agree. I, I find that I get energy from the work that I do. So work isn't you know, stressful and I need something outside of work to balance it out. But I do like getting outside the MBA sort of Ivy League bubble every once in a while and, and seeing you know, what's going on in the world from a totally different lens. And it's, it's yeah. tremendously refreshing
1: well it is cool i mean it's you know for me back to the olive oil one of the things that helped i found really interesting is that my wife and i decided we'd go to the farmer's market and set up a booth and so prior to the pandemic we ran a booth at the local farmer's market every other weekend we'd go you know 6 a.m set up the tent and sell olive oil which is a very different kind of set of skills than (laughs) i was used to in consulting (laughs) now i'm actually selling to consumers and kind of taking in the moment feedback.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. That's amazing. Sam, if we fast forward a little bit, your career plays out in San Francisco doing the work that you're doing and you get a call about being our first chief sustainability officer. Can you talk about how that role was introduced to you?
1: Yeah, so it actually didn't start with a formal role. At that time, we didn't actually have a chief sustainability officer. In 2019, I got a call from Vicky Tam who leads our social impact practice saying, you know, we've done a lot of work in SI related to economic development and education. We want to add a third pillar to our SI practice that's on the environment. And we'd like you to come in and actually lead that and get it built up. And so I thought a lot about it. And it fit with a lot of my interests. You know, my wife and I have always been very supportive of kind of a lot of the, the environmental causes and, you know, we're very active outdoors. I've done a little bit of work with, with the Nature Conservancy on A project back in 2014, and just had a fantastic time with them. And so I said, "Sure, I'd love to do that." What they didn't tell me is that also included this little thing called our own sustainability. And Stephen Tallman, bless his heart, kind of said, "It's no work at all. You've got a team in India that does everything, and you just kind of have to say yes, and everything's good." And so we took that on, and it was a really amazing journey. You know, it's when as I started to dig into it. I don't ever like to leave anything alone. You know, if it's running on, can we improve it? And so I started looking into it and along with, you know, a handful of people like Martha Moreau and others that were supporting the, our social impact work, we decided we would put together a, you know, well, we wanted to be an industry leading sustainability program. And so we started putting that together. And part of that, we came out of that as we, as we got into the pandemic, we started thinking about what are our commitments and we decided we really did need to make this a formal role. So I talked to Manny and a few others in the firm, and we agreed that we'd create the chief sustainability officer role, and I would be the first one.
0: So Sam, let's pick up the thread with you taking on the chief sustainability officer role. At what point did we decide that we were going to make the investment in the role? And what were your priorities coming into the role? And what did you understand was your mission as our first CSO?
1: Yes, so it was during the pandemic in 2020, late 2020, we started having the discussion that the primary driver for it was really that, you know, in a number of the ratings agencies. So if you look at CDP, they ask questions about firm governance, and we had not done a lot with kind of ESG into our firm governance. And as we started talking about those processes, you know, I was working with Gary Turner and a few others on our risk processes and how we think about it you know, we we realized we needed someone officially to do this. And so that's how we kind of got the idea of the role. And given that I was running sustainability at Bain at the time, it, they, they said I was kind of the natural person to to be that, to fill that role, for you know, initially. And they basically said, go, you know, Manny was in his eloquent way, basically said, go out and create, you know, something that we can all be proud of. And mm-hmm. we want to manage our carbon in a way that, you know, is inspirational to our people. It's inspirational to our clients. We want it to be something that kind of differentiates us from other companies, both in our industry and outside of our industry.
0: It's something that's always stood out to me with Bain. And we had Julie Kaufman on talking about DEI. It's We like to advise clients and help them be the best versions of themselves. We like to have an impact on our communities. But like I say, we also eat our own cooking and we try and and Take ourselves as a client and do what more than we just tell advice. ourselves to do. Exactly, exactly. And so, what are your priorities in the role as you as you step into it?
1: Yeah, it, this is actually a really exciting time. I mean, we, you know, as I said, part of our mandate is how do we set up a program that we're proud of, and one of the things we wanted to do is push ourselves. And yeah, you know, it was we announced that we have we will as a firm have committed to be one hundred percent net negative carbon and they will do this every year going forward. And so this is, you know, when we first started this back in 2011, we were the first of kind of the big professional services firms to actually go carbon neutral. And so we've been carbon neutral for 11 years in 2021, we committed that we were actually going to be carbon net zero. And this year we basically said, look, that's not enough. We have to go farther. And so we've agreed across the firm that we're going to be net negative carbon. Kind of from here on out. And what that basically means is that when we, you know, we're going to do everything we can to drive our carbon emissions down along the the pathways specified through the science based targets. But with the residual carbon that we still emit, we will offset those emissions using carbon removal offsets. So we'll actually be taking carbon out of the atmosphere, not just avoiding it being emitted somewhere else.
0: Now, as you get into it, there are things like measuring our footprint and Things like that, which I think the team is working on, but what all is the mechanism in the engine that you're you're driving here? Is it like your tractor?
1: It's it's a lot like my tractor. There's really kind of four key roles we play, right? The first is measuring carbon footprint, right? And we so we have two teams of people in India full-time who are doing a number of things, but one of their, their biggest priorities is every year we go through a process where we gather up all of the activity data that we have on what we're doing around the world to emit carbon. And so what are those different activities? So every plane trip, every car ride, every meal that's paid for and eaten, you work from home, the electricity you use, the commutes, all of that gets captured together. Everything we buy from other organizations. So when you buy paper plates from, you know, staples, we have to um, take that carbon into account as well. And when it goes into a the compost bin, that gets countered as well. So we, we basically go through a, a massive fact gathering effort. Mm-hmm. Once we built that model, we then work with a partner who goes in and actually translates that into, here's the actual carbon emissions for that. And so that gives us our footprint. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of, as you can imagine, there's a, there's 50 different sources of data that we've got to go track down. Right. And you know, just managing all that data complexity is a huge amount of work. And the team in India does an amazing job keeping all of that kind of in one place and under control.
0: And then the second thing is, what do you do with all that data? And what does it mean for how we act as a firm?
1: That's right. The second one is then what do we do about it? That's right. And we've got a number of initiatives that we are either sponsoring or trying to actually execute. So, you know, if you look at our emissions overall, in a normal year, I won't won't include the pandemic because our emissions are much lower than they would normally be. But if you go back to 2019, roughly three quarters of our emissions are related to business travel. And so, you know, one of the things we did was we actually signed the one and a half degree letter for with science-based targets initiative. And we set our science-based targets. And the, one of the things we will do is we will reduce the emissions intensity of our business travel by 30% over the next five years. And so you know, that's one of our biggest objectives. And then the second one is reduce our scopes one and two emissions absolute or in absolute terms by 30% over that same period. And the third of our targets is really that we would go to 100% renewable energy, which we've done. So we accomplished that already. So having these targets, then a lot of it is how do we, you know, let's stare at the data and see where the opportunities are. And business travel being such a huge portion of our portfolio is where we've focused a lot of our energy. And so we've got uh, a handful of initiatives. We're driving around that. The, the coolest one, I think, is that we are just now releasing the what we call the business travel tool. And uh, we need to get someone from marketing to help us with a sexier name. But this basically is, it, it, we make connections into all of our travel databases and our financial systems. And we pull all that data into one place. So you can go into a, a website, a portal, and it will allow you to see Here's the carbon emissions for a given case code that you have. So if you have a case code for your recruiting team, all of the flights that team takes you can go in and see what that carbon was in you know, I won't say real time but in very near real time
0: mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. Um, and we can do this across the firm now so we can now put that data in, in the hands of people around the firm. Everyone will have access to it and it allows you know allows us to do some really cool things like when you know all the different functions and practice areas are doing, their the annual planning around their finances they'll also be required to do a carbon budget and so you know and then they'll have the tools to actually go through and manage that carbon budget and be able to say yes you know i've got x tons of carbon to use this year here's the flights that i'm planning here's what i actually took and here's how i have to adapt and so you know we can't mandate this from top down right bane people don't react very well to top down directives and so we have to put the data in people's hands and set the targets, give them the tools and let them go figure it out. And so that's where we're headed on that one.
0: Yeah. And, and it's funny because I've, I've had conversations with clients where we tell them, you know, what gets measured is what gets managed.
1: That's right. I always tell them the same, the similar thing. You get what you measure. Yep. And, you know, and so that's, that's one of our big initiatives and, you know, we're, we're doing what we can. It's going to require a lot of that, a lot of kind of changes to the way we operate. So things like, You know, we don't want to just get on a plane every week and go see the client like we normally do. Right. I mean, that's that's a you know, we will never get to the point where we won't need to do some travel. There is huge value in face to face interaction with clients, but we should be smart about how we do it. And so, I mean, I think back to the before the pandemic, you know, I was just as guilty as everybody else. Monday morning, you put the team on a plane, you go sit in the client's city and you hope that you get a meeting with them. And, you know, I can remember pushing back on my team was saying, do we really need to do this? And I said, well, you know, there's the off chance. And, you know, I was just lazy. And so I think if we can be a little smarter about how we make choices in our travel, we can actually have a significant impact. And I think one of the big eye-opening things that we had happen when we actually started looking at the data was that half of our, our business travel was actually internal. And so we can attack that one in a much different way. You know, that's the place where we can be a lot smarter about how we do it. It doesn't mean we don't stop or it doesn't mean we stop having big meetings and everything. It's just we need to be smart about how we do it from a location perspective and frequency and kind of how we structure those types of meetings.
0: And Sam, just to be clear, the carbon footprint measuring that the team is doing includes when we travel in clients and we're billing those tickets out to clients, you know, as part, that's of, part of the expense.
1: That's right. And we offset that as part of our kind of annual offset. That's really the, I can get into the offset part of this as well, but that's a part of our program overall is that we include the travel we do for clients in our scope three.
0: That's amazing. Sam, there were two other things that I wanted to talk about that you mentioned were priorities. One was the reporting that your team is doing and the purchase of offsets. And why don't we start with offsets and talk a little bit about the role that's playing in the work that you're doing inside Bain?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And so we've been buying offsets for a number of years. In fact, we going back all the way to 2011, offsets were part of our the, the, the mechanism we use to achieve our carbon neutral status. So, you know, for the par- past 11 years, we've been buying offsets every year to effectively offset all of the carbon emissions that we do end up emitting that year. What's new and I think very exciting this year is or over the past couple of years is that we've one shifted the quality of the offsets we're buying. So, you know, traditionally we were buying inexpensive kind of carbon avoidance offsets, you know, the typical kinds of things you get from projects to replace cook stoves in, you know, some country or, or things like that. We've shifted from buying those to, to buying what are called carbon removal credits. And what this means is the actual project is something like reforestation or you know, using solar power or wind power, mm-hmm. things that actually take carbon out of the... Well, solar power and wind power would be a carbon avoidance, mm-hmm. but it's projects that actually take carbon out of the atmosphere, like reforestation. Right. And we've increasingly been buying those types of offsets for all of our portfolio. This year, for the first time, we're, we're investing 100% of the money we spend on offsets will be to purchase those types of offsets. And going forward, we'll continue to focus our investments in, in projects in those areas. So lots of natural climate, natural climate type solutions.
0: And the last part of what your team is doing is similar to some of the stuff that Julie Kaufman's team is doing as part of our chief diversity officer's office, which is holding ourselves accountable. In Julie's case, they're publishing the DEI report and sharing some of our data publicly, which is something we never would have done 20, 25 years ago. Can you talk about some of the work your team is doing to hold ourselves accountable by sharing data publicly?
1: Yes, absolutely. So, and it was pretty cool. Back a few years ago, one of the, I guess this was back in 2019 or 2020. Back in 2020, you know, one of the ideas we had was we should be publicly reporting our data on emissions. If we want to hold ourselves accountable and really have, you know, as I mentioned before, an industry leading carbon management program, we ought to be transparent about what we're doing. And so, you know, we did a screen and we came across the CDP, which is an organization that basically provides carbon reporting standards for investors and, or, or companies and, and even government organizations on what are their carbon emissions and what are they doing about it. And so we decided we would apply or you know, we would actually report to CDP. This was a big change for Bain, right? You know, if you think back 20 years ago, we didn't even have business cards, let alone you know, tell people anything public about us because we didn't want that kind of information out there. But it was really amazing to see how quickly the firm got behind, you know, our first public reporting effort. And so, we um, report to CDP on an annual basis now. I, I'm super happy to kind of say always say that we, we've we received an A- score from CDP. You know, we actually had, I, I learned that we actually had applied to CDP before this, the year before, there was a random consultant in Boston who was responding to an RFP that the client <laughs> asked if they needed a CDP score. And so they had actually submitted on behalf of Bain without anybody knowing about it. We scored a D minus. I took that as a bit of a challenge that I'm not a D guy. So I, I really need to figure out how do we get us higher up. And, and the team was great. You know, We ended up getting an A minus score this past year as well. That's, that's So this has become one of our first... Kind of public reporting agencies that we actually work with.
0: So Sam, as we start to wrap up, I wanted to ask you for on behalf of people listening, you know, is this the type of thing that you know, your office and your team is doing, or can they join Bain and get involved? And if so, how can they get involved when they join Bain in, in any position at Bain?
1: Yeah, there's lots of ways for people to to get involved in this right and in, in, in these types of activities. I mean, the ESG and its implications to business is, is probably one of the biggest challenges that we're facing right now as a firm. It's one of our biggest investment areas. And so if someone does want to get involved, there are a handful of ways to do it. You know, First and foremost are the green teams in the offices. We have great groups of people in each office that comprise the green teams. These are grassroots groups. A lot of their focus is on how can their individual office reduce their emissions. And, um, you know, they've, they've done a huge amount of work over the last couple of years, expanding the network to where, well, we don't have them in every office yet. We will have them in every office in the next year. And that's the fastest way and, and easiest way for someone to get involved. Second is, you know, get in touch with some of the social impact work we're doing, right? Because talk to the leaders in the in the social impact practice in your office. Talk to them about, you know, what projects are we doing and how can you get involved his Pacific Island tuna is just, you know, it's the gold standard for the type of project we aspire to have. And so get involved through social impact. And then, you know, in further, you know, our effort, you know, which is our kind of ESG consulting for corporate clients, you know, we're trying to grow that practice around the world. And so, you know, reach out to the partners who are doing that work in your local office and get to know them and find out what's, you know, what's coming and get involved in a project. So there's lots of different ways you can kind of um, get involved. This is something you want to do. But I mean, it's an exciting time. And I've seen people have just a huge amount of interest in doing this kind of work.
0: Really awesome. Sam, it is always great to catch up. And thanks for doing this. I I enjoyed hearing uh, you and the team talk when we were together at our leadership team meeting. And I'm glad you're able to come and share some of that story with everyone today.
1: Absolutely. Happy to do it.